you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6. We are closing out today in our series in 1 Timothy. We're going to make our way to 2 Timothy next as part of the larger series, Distinctives of a Gospel-Shaped Church. And we're focusing especially on 1 Timothy 6 and verse 17 through 19. And then we'll close out with these last verses uh, in the end of the letter as well in a message entitled, Set Your Hope on God. I want you to know that what you set your hope on and in matters. Material things, even the best of them, cannot bring lasting hope to your life because anything that you can hold in your hands or anything that you can buy with money is going to eventually deteriorate, get old, wear out, or get spent up. Some of these things can make our lives easier for a time, but they're not going to make a difference permanently. Even when we emphasize relationships with other people, uh, those can fall short because other people are limited in their abilities and their capacities, just like we are. And lasting hope only comes from God, who is the source of hope. I begin reading here in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 17, the word of God says, instruct those who are rich in the present age not to be arrogant or to set their hope on the uncertainty of wealth, but on God who richly provides us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do what is good, verse 18, to be rich in good works, to be generous and willing to share, storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of what is truly life. Hope, from a general perspective in our world, is typically defined as something that we expect or want to happen in the future, but we really don't have any certainty of its fulfillment. It's a hope-so kind of hope. But in the Bible, it means something very different. It means a strong and confident expectation. It means that because of who God is and what God has promised and what God has shown us he will do, that we have confidence that certain things are going to come to pass. So hope is synonymous with salvation and all of the blessings that come with salvation, past, present, and future. Now, part of the challenge from our limited human understanding is that eternal hope is unseen from our perspective. And we might not hope in it as much as we should because we can't see it in the moment. We can't touch it with our hands. We can't hold on to it and possess it from a physical standpoint. But yet it's the only thing that is actually lasting because the certainty of it is anchored in the certainty of God's character. Biblical and eternal hope is not passive, it is active. It is not automatic, it is invited. Hope is not permanent in our minds, it's something that we have to practice in our lives. And biblical hope is a reality and not just some type of feeling. Now after giving praise to God in the two prior verses, the Apostle Paul makes a very distinct transition in this letter. He moves from commands for Timothy specifically 
to now how Timothy should instruct those who are rich in this present age. He reiterates what he's already written in 1 Timothy 4 and verse 10, that we have put our hope in the living God. Those who are rich in the present age must use their riches wisely and strategically and responsibly if they expect to be rich in the age to come. Now, what are riches or what is wealth? We typically think of it from uh, our perspective of being the things that we possess minus what we owe. So our net worth, however small or great it is, is comprised of the things we possess minus whatever we owe against it. And our wealth is thought of as the accumulation of resources, the worldly possessions that a person accumulates. Now, I want to remind you here as well, as we've already noticed in this series, that wealth is relative. Here's what I mean by that. You might be sitting here thinking, this doesn't particularly apply to me because I am not rich in this present age. If you have an income of $59,000 in the United States, you have enough buying power to put you in the 91st percentile as compared to the rest of the world. What that means is that if you have an income of $59,000 in this country, then you have more buying power than 91% of the rest of the world. And how you view the material, the spiritual, the temporal, and the eternal matters. How you put these things together and understand them matters. So here's the word from Scripture. Do not be arrogant or set your hope on the uncertainty of wealth. Rather, set your hope on God. The foundation of hope is faith in the living God. And our wealth is comprised of those things that we still cannot yet see, but are reality to us. Now, what should we do as we set our hope on God? Well, according to the scripture, first of all, you are to do what is good. You're to do what is good. Now, you know that wealth is uncertain and it's transient. We've already... Uh, talked about in this series and emphasizing it again here in this passage that possessing wealth in and of itself is not the issue. God blessed a number of people in the scripture with significant resources. In fact, scripture makes it clear here that God provides us with all things to enjoy. That's what it says. God blesses us with these things so that we can enjoy them. So what's the issue? The issue is deeply desiring wealth or depending on it. These are the major concerns. It's clear that the love of money is the problem. And we know that the flip side of that is that godliness with contentment is great gain. Arrogance is the problem for us. It's a constant problem. It's not just in the area of riches either. It's in every area of life where we begin to think too much of ourselves. Humility is thinking rightly of ourselves in uh, connection with who God is. Arrogance is thinking too much of ourselves. And when it comes to our riches, we are tempted to believe that we are more because we have more. Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 7 and 8. He said, for what makes you so superior? What do you have that you didn't receive? If, in fact, you did receive it, why do you boast as if you hadn't received it? 
You are already full. You are already rich. You have begun to reign as kings without us. And I wish you did reign so that we could also reign with you. The temptation toward arrogance is that what we possess can cause us to think that we did it ourselves. You remember when God's people were on the brink of uh, the promised land and all that God was going to give to them there in that new place, uh, the land of, uh, that was flowing with milk and honey. And God knew that when they got there, one of their temptations was going to be to think that somehow they had done it themselves. So Deuteronomy 8 and verse 17, the warning comes, beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. The promised land had the potential to make the people arrogant as if they had done something. And it can do the same for us. What we possess can also cause us to be selfish and not to remember those who have less. We don't have time today to go to all the passages of scripture, but the Bible is replete with examples of how we are to treat those who have less, how we are to look at the poor and how we're to think about those who possess less than we do. Just one verse in Proverbs 19 and verse 17, it says, whoever is kind to the poor lends to the Lord and he will reward them for what they have done. So there's this connection in scripture that how we are treating poor people around us is actually how we think of the Lord and how we are blessing him. So here's the instruction. Do what is good, verse 18, and be rich in good works. Do what is good, I think, includes the teaching that Paul has given us throughout this letter to Timothy. And we've got to say very clearly here that we are saved by grace through faith. It is all of the blood of Jesus. We contribute nothing to our salvation. We cannot enhance it. We cannot add to it. We cannot contribute to it in any way. It is all because of the finished work of Christ. When we are saved, we are saved by grace and we are saved to do good works. Ephesians 2 and verse 10 puts it this way. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Literally, that means which God prepared in advance so that we might walk in them. The language of walking was used by teachers in the time of Paul in the way that we talk of living. So it's basically your lifestyle. What's the pattern of your life? How do you think? How do you live? How do you apply the things that have been entrusted to you? Good works are a result of salvation and a result of being filled with the Holy Spirit. But now there's something else going on here in this verse. He says, not only do what is good, but be rich in good works. So why does, he, why does he double up on that? Why does he say, do what is good, but then be rich in good works? Well, your good works should be numerous and abundant. Being rich or wealthy from a material standpoint means to have a great quantity of money or being rich uh, in that way. But being rich in good works means having a great quantity of doing good in your life for other people. Now, you've heard the phrase spoken of Christian people or otherwise, maybe not necessarily Christian people. Oh, they're a, they're a do-gooder. That's used typically pejoratively. That's not a compliment, generally speaking. But it ought to be a compliment. It ought to be those people are do-gooders in the sense that they use their lives. They use what God has entrusted to them 
for the good of others. Shouldn't it be said of our lives that we use what God has given to us so that we can richly bless others? That's the pattern that we're being encouraged toward in this passage. And you need to understand that our good works will be evaluated at the judgment seat of Christ. Not in terms of our salvation, not in terms of heaven or hell. That's settled by the blood of Jesus. But it will be for our eternal rewards. For the glory of God. Have we used our lives on the things that are important? Or have we spent them on things that are worthless? Wood, hay, and stubble. That will ultimately be burned up. I love the uh, words of John Wesley here. He said, do all the good you can by all the means you can and all the ways you can and all the places you can and all the times that you can to all the people you can as long as you ever can. Do what is good. And then secondly, as you set your hope on God, be generous. Be generous. He says, verse 18, be generous and willing to share. God expects you to use your influence to give to his work and to help others. And for the Christian, what we gain, in other words, what God gives to us, our increase, always has a greater significance than us just having more. Think about the comparison and the contrast in the way that many people think. Many people in this life think that what they get is intended to be for the accumulation so that when they get it, they have more. They're more uh, wealthy, they're better off, they're more powerful, whatever it is. But for Christians, what we gain has the significance of us being able to do even more good and be more generous for the glory of God. So here's the way I would encourage you to think about this. Live with open hands with what God's entrusted to you. Learn to live a life of generosity. Learn to be a person who freely gives and willingly shares with a spirit of generosity. And God will bless that kind of mentality. And the command to be generous is general, but it has multiple applications. It's an expectation, not just a suggestion. Now, some of you have heard the name uh, David Green. Uh, He is the 80-year-old a CEO of Hobby Lobby, and his net worth has been valued to be $13.7 billion. Now, I don't even know what that means, but that's a lot of money. That, that, that's significantly wealthy. The Green family has contributed an untold amount of money for Christian purposes. It is phenomenal, a lot of the philanthropy that they have done for the cause of Christ. And they're highly criticized because of their visibility and people being jealous and so on. But I'm just telling you, they've done a lot for the cause of Christ. Well, he made the decision that he was going to release the control of the fortune and put it in a trust so it would live on for the mission that he believed God had given to them. And here's what he wrote in an op-ed piece. He said, in the mid-1980s, I went through a period where I'd grown proud thinking that I had the Midas touch. And I nearly lost the business. God had to show me that he was the one who granted success. Wealth can be a curse. And in most cases, if you drill down on it, wealth is a curse in terms of marriage, children, and things of that nature. That bigger mission and purpose helped me realize, listen to this, 
that I was just a steward, a manager of what God had entrusted me. And then he said, God was the true owner of my business. That's an attitude of understanding ownership versus stewardship. And I think one of the things we've missed out on in the church and in the Christian faith is that sometimes we compartmentalize the, the sacred and the secular. So we think, well, the, the sacred part, that's, that's just a small part of what I do, but then the rest of my life is over here. But if you think about all of your life as being lived for the glory of God through faith in Christ, you're going to want to use everything God has given you for the good of others and for the blessing of people in the name of Christ. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. Well, I'm not David Green. I'm not wealthy like that. Well, I got good news for you. You don't have to be wealthy like David Green to be generous. You just have to be generous. Proportionately, with however the Lord has blessed you, you can be a generous person. Be willing to share is something we're taught from childhood. Because why? We have a tendency to be selfish. What I have is mine. And what yours is mine as well. I mean, that's kind of the mindset. Little children, they get in a room and they, they try to take things that don't belong to them because they want it. They're, they're selfish. They, they hoard it up. Well, God help us that we would be adults with resources to leverage and that our mindset would be we're going to hoard it up for ourselves. We want to be willing to share what God has freely given to us. And I think the way to do that is to understand that generosity starts in the heart. Paul makes it clear in 1 Corinthians 13 that even if he were to give everything that he had to the poor, even give his body over to be burned, but he didn't have love, he said it'd be nothing. So you could take everything that you've got, you could give it away, you could throw it away if you wanted to, and if it's not with a heart of generosity, it's going to be of no effect if it doesn't come from a heart of love. Loving God, loving people, using what's been given to you. And generosity is about sharing with others. Hebrews 13, 16 puts it this way. And do not forget to do good and to share with others for which such sacrifices God is pleased. Your heavenly father is pleased when he looks down on your life and he sees a person, whatever they've been uh, given and whatever's been entrusted to him, he sees a person who says, Father, I want to use what I have for you. I want to honor your name with what you've given me. And the father says, at least according to Hebrews 13 and verse 16, I am pleased with you, my child, because it honors him. And then generosity is also a blessing to us. Did Jesus not say it's more blessed to give than to receive? Discipline yourself to be faithful in regular giving through the Lord's work. Pay attention to the needs around you day to day. Some of them are going to be small. Some of them are going to be significant. Pay attention to them. Learn to be generous from other people who are generous. You know one of the things that's encouraged me the most in generosity in my own life? Being around other people that are generous. People that live with open hands toward other people. People that just enjoy giving. They just love to give of what God's entrusted to them. Those kind of people motivate me to want to give even more, to be more generous with my life. And I think the same would be true for you. And we want to grow in it. And it's not as though we reach a a point and we say, well, we're generous enough now. That's not the idea. The idea is that we can't be more generous than God has been generous to us, and we want to grow in our giving. And then third, as you set your hope on God, 
store up treasures for the coming age. Verse 19 says that very thing, as a good foundation for the coming age. Treasures are the things that we highly value, our money, our time, our relationships, our reputation, our accomplishments. All treasures on this earth are one day, one day going to lose their value. Earthly currency has an expiration date. All of it does. But when you as a follower of Jesus do good works and are generous, you are investing in the coming age. You are laying up for yourself treasures in heaven. Jesus repeatedly taught the idea of laying up for yourself treasures in heaven. He said it in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6 and verse 19 to 21. He said, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust consume and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust consumes and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. How do people store up treasures on this earth? They don't leave them in an unlocked shed. I told the earlier service, they certainly don't leave them in an unlocked shed if they live in Kanawha County. Because somebody's going to permanently borrow it from you. They put it in safe places. They lock it up. They put it somewhere where people can't get to it. They use a safe deposit box or maybe they've got a safe hidden somewhere and they're putting that stuff in there so that it is protected. And they want their treasures not only to be protected but to increase, if at all possible, in value. And when we are investing in heaven, we are putting it in the storehouse of heaven where God protects it and he uses it for his glory. Now, obviously, Jesus told us to pray for our daily provision, our daily bread. But at the same time, he warned against stockpiling things on this earth. And as I've already referenced here in this passage, he makes it clear that God richly provides us with all things to enjoy in verse 17. So God didn't say you you can't have a smartphone. Uh, God didn't say you can't purchase a home to live in. He didn't say you can't have a decent car that runs to drive or maybe a bus that'll get you to your next location. He doesn't say any of those things. He says, stop focusing on accumulating things that don't last. It's all just tools. Whatever God gives us, it's a tool for the greater glory, for the greater purpose. And if we see it that way, we'll never suffer loss. We'll just keep laying up for ourselves treasures in heaven that God will in turn bless. But I also want to note that treasures in heaven are those things that are worthy of heaven. Somebody said that anything you invest in this life can go away, but anything you invest in eternity is secure in the bank of heaven. And it's not only about the financial aspect of treasures. In fact, the Bible's clear. There's going to be rewards for those who are faithful in the Lord. There are five distinct crowns that are mentioned. I don't think that's the only rewards that are going to be issued, but those are certainly the crowns that are laid up for us in heaven. And as we think about that, the souls of people that we lead to Christ, those are treasures. People that we're taking with us. One day we're going we're gonna to step into glory, and hopefully when we step into glory, into the presence of God, we're also going to be stepping into the presence of people that we have had the privilege of sharing the good news of Jesus with who have called on Jesus as their Savior and Lord. And they're going to welcome us in as well. And we're going to be blessed because we've endured persecution on this earth. We're going to be blessed because we've prayed in secret to honor God. We're going to be blessed because we've served. So rewards are associated with those things we do to live and to love 
like Jesus. And here's the point. Wherever your treasure is, that's where your heart is going to be also. So I say to you, church, value what God values. And our rewards in heaven will glorify God and give us joy and peace and awe of God as we store up treasures for the coming age. Now it says here in the last part of verse 19 that we are to take hold of what is truly life. And we are to guard against the dangers of wealth by doing what is good in this passage, by being generous, and by storing up treasures for the coming age. I want you to know that any other form of life is a counterfeit life. It's a mirage. True life understands that God is the provider of all that we need. A counterfeit life says, i got to rely on myself. True life says God's the owner and I'm the steward. A counterfeit life says I'm the owner and I get to call the shots. True life says joy comes from giving. A counterfeit life says happiness comes from getting. A true life says my security is in God. A counterfeit life says security is in what I possess. If you believe that what you possess is not intended for a greater purpose, and you do not invest it for an eternal purpose, you're going to be sadly disappointed with the opportunity you have wasted, if you are a Christian, when you get to heaven in the presence of the Lord. You're going to be sorrowful because of missed opportunities. Now, back to verse 20 in 1 Timothy 6, and I close with this. He says, Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you. Avoid an irreverent and empty speech and contradictions from what is falsely called knowledge. By professing it, some people have departed from the faith. Grace be with you all. He says, listen, Timothy, these people around you, they're, they're telling things that are nonsense and they're confusing people and they're calling it knowledge. Just avoid all that. Just, just ignore it. it, it it's, it's refuse. It's, it's not helpful for you. Instead, you hold on to the things that matter and you guard what has been entrusted to you. And that's the same message to us in the church today. Don't listen to the things that are false, that lead you astray. Just keep your eyes on Jesus and you guard that good deposit that God has given to you. Let's bow our heads together for a moment. And then after I pray, uh, Jason and the band are going to come back for this closing song. God, we thank you this day that you are the God on the mountain and the God in the valley, that you are unchanging. Thank you that we can lay up treasures in a place that uh, they're not going to wear out or rust out or be stolen, but they're going to be magnified for your name and for the glory of King Jesus. I pray if there's anyone here today that is listening to this message, or maybe you'll listen to it later on, who has never repented of their sins and believed in Jesus and received the treasure of the gospel, that they would take that step of faith. God, the greatest gift you have ever given is your only son. You gave us the gift of Jesus who came and lived and died and now lives again. And you extend to us the free gift of eternal life through his shed blood and through the power of his resurrection. I pray that we would not only receive it, but we would live according to it, a life that honors you in all that we do. 
God, whatever the needs are here in this place, as there are spiritual steps that need to be taken as we close out our service today, I pray that people would respond to you in faith and obedience. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.